Um, now I want to turn it over to Michael Neal. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we've had people share their testimony, just what, what God is doing in their life and how um, God is working in them and using them. And um, just to also inspire us and encourage us that our story doesn't have to be perfect. Our story doesn't have to be um, this grand thing, but who we are and who God created us to be can be used to share our faith with those around us. So here's Michael Neal. He's on his way up. He was also back with the kids, so he might be a little flustered. So grace, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my two-year-old may be back there screaming, so um, that'll help me keep it brief. Um, <laughs> thank you. Good to be with you all. This feels, this feels rather formal to me. I, I, um, I think I, I want to tell you my story. I'm going to tell it in kind of three interweaving threads, if you will. And I'm not, a, I don't do a lot of formal public speaking. I do more writing. So if it feels, uh, if it feels like a story, that, that's because that's how I think about it. Uh, so um, the, the three webs are uh, transformation, confusion, and reorientation, right? If, uh, so Alyssa, that's right, right? You get like the three points, right? This is, yeah, see, I didn't even, I didn't even go to cemetery school. Um, okay. <laughs> So, so I'll start with the transformation, right? Um, I, at 18, I, I would say is, I gave my life to Christ. And uh, this was kind of one of those, like, like, almost overnight, I had this transformative experience. Like, my life changed dramatically. My, the purposes, the, uh, the way I was thinking about uh, what I wanted to do with my life, who I wanted to be, this all shifted dramatically. My behavioral pattern shifted dramatically, uh, and the people I spent my time with uh, shifted dramatically. So this could be a story of like, I'm, I'm saved, you know, but that actually is not where I want to spend my time today. Um, it's what's kind of, it's what's happened since then. And uh, that's where the second thread comes in, and that's experiencing confusion. So, um, so this radical transformation I had uh, sort of put me on a trajectory of, um, spending my time really differently. I, I was doing a lot of like deep Bible study. I was doing a lot of uh, prayer. I was learning to practice some of the d disciplines of, Christian of Christianity and spirituality. And uh, most importantly, I came to know people during my college years in ways that I had really never known people. Um, letting them into sort of the dark parts of my life, both at things that I didn't want to talk about in the past things, even in, in the present that I felt like I was ashamed of, or I thought people would not accept me. And what I encountered was acceptance. Uh, and, and that, uh, was incredibly, um, meaningful, uh, for me. And I think contributed to that transformation I was undergoing. Um, the, the thing that didn't happen though, that was very confusing for me was that I did not experience that similar intimacy with God, uh, and I, I was around a group of people who kept telling me these things like God wants to walk with you and talk with you and inform every decision that you're making. And, um, and I just could not seem to hear or effectively experience God uh, in the ways that I conceived a relationship uh, normally functioned. Um, so I tried, I tried really hard. I, I would go on the silent retreats. I would basically, any worship service that was available, I was there. I read Brother Lawrence. I did the Experiencing God study book. I, you know, uh, anyway, I did a lot of, of waiting and not just waiting, like really honestly, uh, trying. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I, I, I think though that I didn't, uh, at the time I just felt like this is not, this is not happening in the sense of what I thought a relationship ought to be or what a relationship was in my mind. And um, anyway, so if this is the point where you're kind of, ex- you're thinking this is like the climax of the story and I'm about to be like, and then that's not, that's not actually what happens. Uh, what actually happens is I continue to be like, okay, this is uh, not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and um, yeah, so I didn't hear from God in the ways that I was kind of hoping for. And I, I did experience God in other ways, uh, most, most importantly in loving community. Um, and, um, and I can say, though, that like this, this was and continues to be kind of hard for me um, even though there's a lot of sweetness in it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think that's, that's the confusion that I'll put before you. The third piece that I wanted to tell you about is reorienting my life, um, or reorienting my Christianity, perhaps more fairly. So all the while this is going on, uh, I was really interested in school. Um, I really valued learning. I read a book, uh, called God's Long Summer, uh, and it's, it's about the summer of 1964 in Mississippi uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, this is the particular summer. You've probably heard of it. It's when three civil rights workers went missing and eventually turned up dead um, or murdered. And um, that was one of many things that happened that summer, right? So anyway, the book is really interesting. It profiles five Christians, uh, people that affiliate as Christians, and their responses to this summer, right? And... Um, there was one particular Christian in there that totally shattered my paradigm of what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, he was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Jackson, Mississippi. And serendipitously, he was also a graduate of the small Baptist college that I went to. My wife jokes sometimes and says, I go down these like rabbit holes of where I get like obsessed with something. And this is one of those times. I got totally obsessed with this guy. Like I found his college yearbook. I found <laughs> sermons that he wrote. You know, I start totally going after this guy to find out, and, and it was like a weird obsession, you know? And I look back and I'm like, no, this is totally a movement of something in my life happening, right? Um, because this guy, in the face of hatred, violence, murder, this man never took a position from that pulpit. He never said anything. He never acknowledged the stuff that was going on in the state that was making international news. Um, He just went on preaching the gospel, right? And um, all this while racism, murder, hatred is like boiling over, right, in his city. And um, I say this shattered my Christian paradigm because I was horrified to see that, like, I think I would have done what he did. I think I would have responded in the same way. And the reason why was because I was, like, a go-along-to-get-along guy uh, that was committed to like pursuing a spiritual life with God. And I really, I felt like God's going to make things new one day, you know, uh, but right now what he really cares about is my personal spirituality. And, um, you know, of course, like through the lens of history, right. And especially juxtaposed with the other Christians who did do something at, at a great cost to themselves, this, this person's right. Omission is just horrendous. Um, so, at this time, I, I start noticing, like, wow, there's something wrong with my Christianity. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure what to do about it. Um, but I, I start 
hearing the Lord's prayer differently at this time where we say, uh, where we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Not just as a request of God, but also as a call to me as a Christian. Um, I start turning my attention in, the, in my Bible reading to the prophets and noticing really for the first time this like profound and unending message of justice for marginalized people and critique of systems of privilege in their own societies. Uh, in reading the Gospels, I started noticing that Jesus is constantly upending Hebrew power structures. And he's calling for attention to injustices that were often overlooked at this time uh, and that people would just shrug their shoulders at, right? These words, the kingdom of God is in your midst, that Jesus says over and over again. Uh, I start to hear as when the presence of Christ is there, all injustices, all evil will be laid bare. And Jesus intends to do something about it, not just someday off in the distance, but now. Um, and this phrase, he says, look, I'm making all things new, right? These things start hitting me. And to be honest with you at the time and even now, right? I, I don't really know. I'm not always sure what it looks like to live into this calling for myself with you guys as the church, um, to see God's kingdom come, to see things made new. So, this testimony is not one where I got saved at 18 and it's like, uh, <laughs> it was a new beginning and that was it, right? Uh, this is one where that happened and then I've had many new beginnings uh, since then. And uh, I don't really have a, a tidy resolution to what I mentioned before about not experiencing God in particularly relational ways. And I don't know, as I just said, I don't know... Um, what it always means to bring God's kingdom to my community and beyond. But in the midst of not having answers, this is where I feel like I've found faith and I've experienced the grace of God in the sense that faith and grace have been required in greatest measure. Um, so in this way, I, I keep moving and living my way into these answers and um, knowing other people and allowing them to know me. So... Um, yeah, that's, that's the, at least the piece of my story that I have. So I'm glad to, to know you more and tell you more and hear more of yours. So um, funny story, although not really funny. I do feel bad. But um, Joe is sick this morning. And, well, he's been sick since, like, Friday. He's going to hear this on the podcast and be like, oh, man. But he's been sick since, like, Friday Thursday probably started feeling it. And yesterday was the Grandview Hop. So he ran around all day yesterday getting ready for the Grandview Hop and pulling stuff and then was there from 5, 4 to 9 or 4 to 10 and uh, picking up trash and talking to people and doing all that stuff that wears him out because he's an introvert. And then he comes home at 10 o'clock last night. And he's like, I don't think I can preach tomorrow. And if you know anything about my current situation, I am also preaching at another church in Franklinton that they have their service starting at 1030. So this is going to be a really fun morning. Um, I, luckily, Joe writes his sermons in advance, unlike me. So I'm going to read Joe's sermon to all of you. It's really good. I read through it last night and I was like, I wouldn't change anything. 
mostly because it's 11 o'clock, but I wouldn't change anything. It's a really good sermon. I'm really excited to share with you. There's going to be a couple awkward moments where I'm telling something from Joe's perspective, but just pretend like I'm Joe, and my hair up here is really right here. So, um, but to, to be fair, this, I'm, I'm really excited to share this. I'm excited to be able to be here with all of you. I miss all of you. Um, and the, the thing that we're talking about today is we're talking about the gospel basics. What is the gospel? When we're, we're talking about evangelism or we're talking about people who have, have some experience with the church or with Jesus or something, what does it mean for us to share the gospel, to share our faith with those people? And so I'm really excited. We're going to be just... Um, talking about grace today. And um, Joe does a really good job of, of spelling it out for us. So Philip Yancey, if anyone has heard of him or read this book, uh, it's a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. Um, I've never read it, but Joe has. And he tells this story at the start of the book. I hope this isn't too distracting, but Philip Yancey tells the story at the beginning of the book, and um, it's stuck with Joe ever since. Uh, It goes like this. It's a story from a friend of Philip Yancey's who works among hard-living people in Chicago. Um, And so a prostitute came into this office in in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, selling her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At least I asked, at last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. What struck me about my friend's story is that women, much like this prostitute, fled towards Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? The more I pondered this question, the more I felt drawn to one word as the key. All that follows uncoils from that one word. That word is grace. So we've been talking about how evangelism has lost its touch in the American church. People are uncomfortable talking about their faith. Evangelism has fallen out of grace in more than one way. Evangelism has fallen out of grace because we've forgotten that the good news is simply that grace. So today we're set to discuss the basics of the gospel. We want you to know exactly what the good news is. Gospel means good news. And I think anytime we feel uncomfortable about sharing this good news, it's because we've forgotten what the good news is. We've forgotten about grace. We haven't experienced it. We aren't offering it. And so we're uncomfortable talking about it. We live in a world that is thirsty for grace. I'm a firm believer in in things being complicated. I like nuanced, complicated conversations that don't have a nice bow on top, and that's kind of how we've formed this community. When it comes to the gospel, things 
there are things that are complicated. We could spend time reflecting on who gives us grace, who is God, who is Jesus. We could spend time reflecting on how God gives us grace. What does the cross have to do with grace? There are entire books and catalogs of books dissecting the various atonement theories. We could. We could talk all day about who offers us grace and what the cross has to do with it. But when you get past all of that, grace itself is extremely simple. The message of the gospel is extremely simple because it's grounded and rooted in grace. Somehow we believe in a God who died on a cross and now is willing to accept us just as we are. Love us before we even knew we were lovable, while we were yet sinners, and not require us to do anything to receive divine approval, and no matter who we are, be fully accepted. Grace is 100% free, no strings attached, freedom in Christ. Nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, grace. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that simple. And it's not something else. It's grace. Grace when we're wrong, grace when we mess up, grace to accept ourselves, grace to fill in all the ways we fall short, grace to let our guard down, grace to love others, grace 100% free, no strings attached, freedom. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. It's that simple. And anytime you add something to it, you make it about something else, you make it about rules or theories or expectations or special church clubs or specific prayers, then you make it something it isn't. This message is so simple that the early church, right after Jesus died, was try, always trying to make it something else, to add things to it. This is one of the main purposes of an entire letter in the New Testament to the church in Galatia. The church there had heard the good news from Paul, the apostle, and then later from other missionaries, missionaries that were Christian, but who had added things to the gospel to make it more robust, more nuanced, more difficult. And Paul hears about this from other letters, and he gets upset, and in classic Paul fashion, then writes them a letter addressing this. And right from the start, he lays out his issue with them. So if you want to open your Bibles or turn your smartphone, we're going to spend some time in Galatians. We're going to jump around to the whole through the whole book, but it's just five chapters, so it should be okay. Maybe six chapters. Um, so in chapter one, Paul does a formal greeting from verses one to five, and then he does that in all of his letters. And then once he's passed this greeting, he jumps right in and tells them exactly why he's writing. He says, um, verse six and seven. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Now, if we read that and we take out the word gospel and put in good news, let's read it again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different good news, which is really no good news at all. They added stuff to the gospel, making it a different gospel, which isn't good news at all. Remember, gospel means good news. So he's saying you're turning this into good news. You're turning this good news that we have that's been given to us into something else and making it, I don't know if it's bad news, but it's definitely not good news. Now, this letter was in response to something that was happening. So it's like we're in this letter in Galatians, we're just reading one side of the conversation. So we only really know what the missionaries were teaching based on what Paul addresses. And so we have to infer a little bit of what they were teaching. But all the same, it was very clear. It had to do with grace. Paul mentions grace over and over in this letter. They were turning from grace to a different gospel. 
And that gospel was rooted in teachings that related to the Old Testament law. Paul says it this way near the end of the letter in chapter five, verse four, he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So there's this debate between law and grace. The law was the things you did to be the kind of person God would want. The law was, can you put that up on? The law was the things you did to be the kind of person God would want. But grace is the truth we accept that God already wants us. God already wants us. Law and grace. That's the tension we see over and over again in Galatians. And it plays out in three ways. The law and the Old Testament, the new missionaries were teaching, it could be divided into three categories. You can think of a house. The house is the community of God. This illustration is used throughout the centuries. So you enter the community of God through the entryway, through the door, through the threshold, and you arrive into the living room. This is the space where things go on. And then people, some people um, go to different rooms. So the women go to one room in the Old Testament, the men into another. They enter the parlor to smoke in Joe's words. And the kids go to the nursery. The servants go to the basement. Everyone has their place that they belong. So they all come in through the front door. But then in Old Testament law, you're divided off based on who you are into these different rooms. Think of Downton Abbey. Anybody watch Downton Abbey? Anybody raise your hands so I know if this is actually going to stick. Okay, it's good. So Downton Abbey, TV show, BBC, you have this ruling class, the turn of the century, the 19th century, the 20th century. It's 20th century. Um, So the turn of the century, uh, this ruling family who have tons of servants and people that are working from them. And you have the family that lives and moves about in these certain rooms. And and there's places they can go and places that are acceptable for them. Well, and then the servants, they generally stay in the basement unless they have jobs or roles to come up to the main floor to work with the family, but they definitely have their place. And it is not always acceptable for them to be um, with the family. And that was the community of God in the Old Testament. To enter the house, there were specific rules you had to do. For men, you had to be circumcised. It was the way you entered the family of God, the community of God. It's the way you entered the house. And if you weren't circumcised, you didn't belong. So if you were a woman, and you, which you weren't circumcised, you would enter the house with your husband or your father. That's how it worked, which means if you were a female who wanted to be in God's family and the men in your house were interested, well, you were out of luck. You probably had to get in through another way working for a family that was in. That's one of the reasons why circumcision was inadequate. But now once you're all in the living room, so you've found a way in through the entryway, now you're all in the living room, there's all kinds of rules. You're expected to live differently now that you're living in God's community. So there were loads and loads of rules that you were to keep. The most obvious were the Ten Commandments, but even on top of the Ten Commandments, they've added tons of rules, 614 other rules, and then more throughout history um, of how to live in the house. But even more than these like 10 commandments and other rules, there were rules based on who you were. Men should do something, women should do something different, kids do something else, as well as foreigners, you have to sit on the porch, Gentiles can't come into the house, eunuchs, you can come into the living room, but you're not allowed to hang out with the men in the parlor. Widows, you're on the back porch along with your kids because you can't provide for anyone. Servants, you were all in, you were in all of the rooms when needed, but otherwise you were in the basement. Very Downton Abbey-esque. And that was the Old Testament. Rules for entering, rules for living, and rules for based on who you are. 
That's the Old Testament biblical way of living. So let's sit with that for a minute. Imagine you show up to the world of Downton Abbey. Max, can you? Imagine you arrive. Or any place that you can think of where there are classes and rules and expectations. Like you show up just as you are in your shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops with dress pants. And uh, maybe you were just working in the garden. And like you're in a Disney movie, like a kid in King Arthur's Court, like the magical way you just show up on the front lawn of Downton Abbey and you want to go in and enjoy the party. So you arrive at the front doors. You're there. Can you all see it? Can you all picture yourself at the door? Normally, if you'd want to enter, first you would need to know the right person. Then you need to be from the right family. And then you need to dress the right way. And Downton Abbey, if you've seen the TV show, they deal with all of these things, right? Like the right people get to come in at the right and then all the people break the rules. And But if you got in, then you need to know all the rules for eating and conversation, all the expectations and where you're allowed to go and how you have to behave but also where you belonged, which rooms were for you and which ones were off limits, it's rather overwhelming. But let's say you don't know any of these things and you walk to the front door and maybe you're a fan of the movie, so you're just, you're just kind of excited, not sure what you're doing there, but excited. And maybe you forget you're still in your comfy clothes and your hair isn't done and you don't know it's the episode where the king and queen visit, which I think is in the movie. And so you forget that you don't actually belong until you're greeted by the servants. And the servants look at you with the most significant look of disgust. Can you imagine? What's his name again? The old guy? Carson. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? He would be so upset. There's no way he's letting you in. It's not happening. Except then the son of the house, which there isn't a son in Don Abbey. But anyways, comes out and you realize that you were actually friends with him in college. And he takes you in filled with joy, even though everyone else is in the room is stressed. Have you ever been in that environment where someone is really excited you're there, but everyone else is stressed out that you're there? And he takes you in and he's showing you around. He takes you into the kitchen and the parlor and the nursery. You get the full tour of the house and you hang out in all the rooms, especially the basement with the servants because that's the most fun. And you don't feel uncomfortable because you're with your best friend from college, but everyone else does. If you can imagine what that felt like, then you can imagine what Jesus did every time he hung out with sex workers, tax collectors, the sick and hurting the Samaritan. As a rabbi, as a son of God, he was welcoming them into the people of God, even though the people at the time didn't accept them. They were hanging out in the margins of the Jewish faith, often rejected and unwelcome. And Jesus says, hey, come with me. Come inside. Radical grace. And that's what the early church did. They said, you can come in. And that's what Paul proclaimed, the grace of Jesus. This was the gospel that he passed on, the grace we have in Christ, grace, God's unmerited love for us. We are accepted just as we are, but that makes us uncomfortable. I'm just kidding. That made them uncomfortable. And so new missionaries came to add something to this gospel. The Christian faith had barely made it out of the starting gate. Jesus had barely left, and people were already trying to make grace more complicated, add rules and limitations to the message of the gospel. Think about that for a second. Within a generation of Jesus, they had already started to pollute the message of grace with add-ons and restrictions. One generation, and it was already bogged down with rules. And if that's our human tendency— 
and it happened within one generation of Jesus, and we're now 2,000 years later, how many things do you think have snuck into our gospel message, making it really a different gospel completely and not really good news at all? Do you think we've finally figured out how to live truly grace-filled lives? Or maybe we still have the tendency to, to add to it, which I would enter in that I think this is why people reject us. Because when they hear the gospel, they think of the rules and the add-ons and the restrictions and the exclusion that really wasn't meant to be there at all. I'm guessing if we look up what the new missionaries were up to, we might see how we often do the same thing or worse. These new missionaries who came into Galatia and were spreading this different gospel, they come along and they look at the guy in shorts and shirt hanging out at Downton Abbey and realize he's not going anywhere. So they say, okay, I get it. You're here. You're accepted because you know this guy. Jesus brought you in. We won't argue with that. But now that you're here, you've been here long enough. You should really start dressing and living like us. Now that you've been here long enough, you have to become one of us, like us. You're already inside. We're not going to kick you out, but we need you to do what we do. We need you to get circumcised, to follow the Old Testament rules. You need to stay in your designated areas, men here, women there, slaves there, Gentiles here, Jews here. And that's what was happening in Galatia. The gospel had become a bait and switch. You are welcome. Sinners come home. But once you're home, you better follow the rules. Now, I wonder if sometimes evangelism feels so icky simply because the way we share it, the way we think about it, the way we, feel, the way we live it feels like a bait and switch. I'm going to trick you into be, being a Christian. I'm going to say these words to you and say that you're welcome. But then once you get here, now you have to learn and follow all of these rules. And what I offer you to get in the door isn't what I'll offer you if you stay. I'll get you in the door with one thing and make it about something else if you stick around. And here's how that played out in Galatia. Here's what uh, Paul says about their phony entrance requirements. When it comes to the law, the entrance requirement to be a Jew was circumcision. Here's what Paul says about it, Galatians 5, 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. These rules that you think you have to complete before you're part of God's community, they have no value. The things we put on our checklist that we have to do before we will belong, no value. What in your life do you feel like you have to change in order to be accepted by God or by the church or by society? Do you need to be married with kids? Need to have a better job, better clothes? Do you need to stop cussing, smoking, drinking, getting angry? Then you will arrive. What is that thing that you feel like you have to change in order to be accepted by God? Put that in this verse. For in Christ Jesus, this thing has no value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Here's the basic message of the gospel. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And in Jesus, you are enough. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2, chapter 2, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, 
For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He says, I do not set aside, throw away, or get rid of the grace of God. I will not set aside God's grace. If you've ever experienced grace, if you've ever had a moment where you knew you were loved, not because of what you've done or what you've accomplished or what family you were born into or what money you have or what talents you have, if you've ever felt from God grace, the feeling that you are loved, period, no matter what, loved more than you could ever think or imagine, if you have touched grace, we can't set it aside for something else. That is the gospel. It's not anything else. We have to hold on to it. Christ didn't die for nothing. Christ died so that we could experience the absolute radical grace of God. When you touch it, grab it, and make it your life. That's the only entrance requirement into God's community, holding on to grace. It doesn't matter if I deserve to be here. God wants me here. And God wants you here. You get to cross the threshold and enter God's community Grace is the entryway, and grace is how we live. Now, at that point, we've, we've come into the house. Maybe, just maybe once you're in the house, then you have to follow the rules. Some will preach, like the missionaries did in Galatia, that grace is the entryway, but the law is for those who are there living. Paul knew this, and is what some would think, so he addressed it too. He says, not only is the law useless for helping us enter the house, it's useless for helping us live in the house. He says it like this in Galatians 5.18. He says, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Paul argues that Jesus is enough to get us in the house and the Holy Spirit is enough to show us how to live. He's saying that the law is only useful to set up boundaries for us when we tend to drift towards the wrong stuff, but the law does nothing to change our hearts. So yeah, the law tells us that murdering someone is wrong, but it does nothing to keep us from hating someone. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is able to change us from the inside out, and if we are being changed by the Holy Spirit, then not only will we not murder people, but we might hate people less too, making the law not very useful at all. Because who needs a boundary if you're not drifting away? Who needs the law if you're already loving people? Instead, Paul says, it, says that the Holy Spirit will produce in us, verse 22, chapter 5, we all know this, the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Some of us are familiar with this verse, but we don't realize that it takes place in a letter that is debating the difference between law and grace, between two different gospels. And the one gospel based on the law never produces these kinds of results. Rules, following the rules, breaking the rules, learning the rules, they will not give us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness. They will likely just make us hate our life more, rob our joy, make us impatient, mean, and grumpy people. And we've seen it over and over, right? We know those people. We know us when we're trying to live by the rules. And I wonder if Paul had seen it too. And he poses this this verse as a kind of litmus test. When were you happier and loving and kind? When you accepted God's grace or when you felt pressure to live a certain way to make other people happy? Obviously, when you accepted God's grace. When you received the gift and grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, This list isn't a goal that we work through. It's not a checklist that we can, okay, I have love, I have joy. It's grace. It happens when we live a life filled with the grace of God's spirit. Jesus is enough to get us in. 
The Holy Spirit is enough to change us once we are in and change us in a way that makes sense, not making us all live the same way per se, but helping us become our true selves, which leads us to this last section of the house, the rooms. Here's what Paul says about the phony requirements for people to stay in their designated areas. You see, laws are cold and specific and force people to be what they aren't. The Holy Spirit is alive and active and able to shape us and mold us into people who are unique and able to bring unique gifts and perspectives, which is why Paul says this in Galatians 3, starting with verse 26. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Remember all the places that people are supposed to say, like the men in one room, the women, the nursery. God knocks all those walls down. We get to be together, united, but not uniform. Different and able to bring different gifts, but all together living in whole community as one. Grace through Jesus gets us in. Grace through the Holy Spirit changes us from within, and grace knocks all the walls that would otherwise separate us. And each one, to get us in the house, to, to stay in the house, to, to bring us together, and each one of these things, we do nothing to deserve it. We can't do anything to deserve it, and we don't have to do anything to deserve it. We don't have to have the answers or have our life in order. It's a gift, never earned, never deserved, grace. And anything else is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Anything else isn't good news. These kinds of rules, these kinds of expectations, the way we expect people to do something to get in, to do something to stay in, and the boxes we make people go in are one of the reasons churches are unwelcome, are an unwelcome place for people who need grace the most. What do you expect from people? Do you expect grace? Do you offer grace or do you expect them to fit into these rules? Joe writes this, well, he wrote all of it, but this is from his perspective. As a pastor, I'm expected to expect things from people. We are a welcoming, grace-filled church and I still want people, and still people want to know whether I will stand for truth. They usually mean they want to know whether I will hold people accountable tell them to do something different in their lives, stop living in a particular way that they see as sinful. Will I stand for truth? Now I'm going to say something, Joe is going to say something, and it's going to make some of you uncomfortable, and I know that, and I want you to feel that, and I want you to wrestle with why this makes you uncomfortable. People want to know whether I will stand for truth, for what's right. Interestingly enough, no one has ever asked me if I will stand for grace. It just hasn't happened. No one has ever expected that I offer more grace to someone. Maybe they have and it's just gone unsaid, but I can't think of a time when someone was like, well, Joe, we, should really, we really should take the grace we're showing someone and add some more on top of it. They could use more grace. But you don't often feel pressure in most churches to be more grace-filled, to forgive people more, to give more chances, to overlook more sins. I want to offer so much grace, I get known as being a friend of sinners. I get the reputation that turns heads, and here's why. That's the kind of grace, that kind of grace is what the gospel is all about, and that kind of grace is the birthplace of evangelism. When we experience God's grace and then offer that same grace to others in such a way that turns heads, then we're given the chance to tell people where that grace came from, 
It's not for me. Joe says he's not that nice. I'll leave it there. But God has been so good to me, and I simply want to pass it on. As we relearn, reclaim, and reimagine evangelism, I want to offer yet another lens to consider. Maybe evangelism is, this, is simply explaining to people where your grace comes from. Evangelism is simply showing people God's grace, and then when the time's right, telling them it's God's grace, and they can have as much of it as they want. It's free, and it's yours if you want it. That sounds like good news. Anything else isn't good news at all. Let's pray. God of all love and grace. Sometimes it's hard to believe that that you have that much grace to offer. Sometimes it's hard to accept that that you want us and that we're able to receive that much grace. And God, sometimes we look at other people and think that they don't deserve your grace like we do. Sometimes we look at other people and we think they deserve more grace than we do. God, in all of this, we just ask that you would you would give us your spirit, that you would change us from within, that even in how we think about this and in the way in which we live might change, that you might give us the grace that we need to experience your love, your joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those things that we might first experience it for ourselves, God, so that we might tell those around us, that we might offer your grace to those around us. God, we know that this is supernatural. We know that this is not something that can that we can conjure up. This is not something that we can create on our own, but God, we need your grace for ourselves and for those around us. God, we ask that this week. We know that you love us and you want all the good things for us.